Good morning. We're so glad that you found us here at Possible Church of the Nazarene um, on Facebook. If this is the first time that you have um, found us on Facebook or have, have seen a video of ours, we ask that you maybe like the page if you as you listen to us and you find that you appreciate what you're hearing um, so that you can hear. We're going to be doing this for a while now, uh, as far as we know, until they tell us we can come back together. This is going to be how we present ourselves, and we hope that you will join us, that you'll enter into this time as we get ready to look at this first week of Advent, this, uh, this season that starts the Christmas season. Uh, we are excited that you're with us, and we, uh, we hope that God is blessing you and, is, and it will speak to you through this time. The year 2020, man, that is the year that's going to go down in infamy, isn't it? it? It's definitely been a historic year. I, uh, I see memes and, and captions all over the place that talk about the year 2020 and how it just seems to continue to steamroll as it, as it comes like an avalanche down the hill, building in force every month we go into it. And here we are in November. My favorite, my favorite meme is, um, I saw it at the beginning of the month was, uh, a picture of Jumanji. If you remember that movie, uh, that game where, uh, the, the, all the animals come out of the game, the jungles of Africa, the craziness that happens in there. Uh, they've made a couple new versions of that. And, and so it's one of those, it's a caption of them doing something crazy. And it says, November, you made it. Welcome to level 11 of Jumanji. And it's this idea that every year, every month, a new crazy thing is happening. And, and it's true, right? I mean, we have had the virus that is just ravaged the world, not just our country, but the world around us. It's caused everything to change. This has been one of the worst storm seasons that has been on history. There's been so many hurricanes and just massive, massive destruction through the south and the east with all of those things. It just seems to not end. There seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. We hope there is. We hope that 2021, it's when everything just, you know, opens with a giant rainbow that says, you've made it. We're, we're out of the crazy. But we don't know, right? We don't know what it's going to be like. And, and in those moments where the world seems to be turning upside down with, with the virus, and I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to, to come back after a hurricane when, when the storm has swept through and you have lost everything. I grew, I went to college in Oklahoma City uh, for a couple of years, and I interned at a small little church outside of Oklahoma City where um, that huge Category 5 tornado went through. Uh, it had gone through, I think, about a year before that, and I you could still see, a year later, you could still see the path of destruction that that tornado had caused with houses that... Um, were so destroyed that people just left them. They didn't even come back for them. I couldn't imagine living in that. I, I am, I am, I just, it, it would be so depressing. It'd be so hopeless. There'd be no hope it felt, would feel like, right? And I'll tell you, there have been times this year that the hope has been hard to find. 
uh, especially with us going back and we felt like things were starting to, to open up and we were going to be able to sort of get back to a sense of normality. But we were shut down again because of the spikes, right? And, and that, that sense of, oh, I can't believe this is happening again. It's that, that sense of hopelessness. And today we're going to be looking at a passage in Isaiah where we're, where the Israelites are in that place where they are so full of despair. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. They're hopeless. And the prophet Isaiah is lamenting, which is kind of a, a big word, and we're going to talk about what that word means in a little while. He's lamenting and calling out to God, pleading with God to, to enter into the situation and to bring some kind of change. And, and we're going to look at this passage today, and we're going to see how does this talk to us in our place that we find ourselves today? And each of us have different look, different situations that we're all dealing with, right? And so for some of us, it will speak to us one way, and for others, it's going to speak to us a, a, a different way. But the beauty of the Scripture and the beauty of the Holy Spirit is that God speaks to each of us where we need to be spoken to. He, he knows where you're at. He knows what you need to hear. And, and I'm excited about this passage and, and the message God has for us today um, as we are... We are sitting in a very, sometimes feels very hopeless in, in November of 2020, level 11 of Jumanji. Um, so, if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be in the 64th chapter, and we're going to be reading the first nine verses of this chapter. So, if you will follow along with me, uh, you can pause the video if you don't have your Bible on hand. If, if you don't have your Bible at all, just you have uh, the internet, hopefully, obviously, if you're watching this on Facebook. Um, and you can just Google it real quick. Isaiah 64, 1 through 9, if you'll follow along with me. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, the, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil... Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when did awesome, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God, any God bless besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. 
We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your word and how you can use it to speak to us all of these years later from when Isaiah wrote these words. Father, I pray right now that you will open our hearts and our minds to your word, to what you have to hear, what you have to say to us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will embody my words and will fill them with your holy, with your holy power, that it would not be my words that are being spoken, but your words. For I am just the vessel and I, it, without you, I am nothing. Without you, this message is nothing. So please, please embody it. Fill it with your power, I pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We dedicate this time to you as we look at your word and as we look to see how it can make our lives more like what you want our lives to be like. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, so you need to understand where we're at when Isaiah is writing these words. Okay, so the, the people of Israel are in captivity. They have been captured by the Babylonian Empire. They've been removed from Israel or from Judea, and the city of Jerusalem has been laid waste. The temple has been destroyed. That the all of the people who are um, were taken with the Babylonians back to their land, to their capital, to their places of where they lived, and they're being assimilated into the Babylonian um, kind of world and everything the Babylonian um, the Babylonians valued, who they worshipped, all this stuff. They're they're trying to erase the Judaism or the Israeli or the who it was to be in Israel and make them Babylonian. Um, we see this in the book of Daniel. When Daniel is brought to the court of Nebuchadnezzar, all of these, these Jewish men were given new names. And all of these names that they were given were Babylonian names because they were erasing who they were before and recreating them in the images of the Babylonian empire. And this has been... Um, this has been their, their mission the whole time that they've had the, the Israelites with them. Um, it's not a, it's not like a full force thing where they're making them do it, but it's, it's very prevalent in their lives that they are in Babylon. They are not w- where they were before. Um, and they've been there for a long time. Most of the people alive by the time Isaiah writes this, um, were if not if they weren't alive, they um, when the Israelites were taken out, they were very very young when the Israelites were taken out of of Israel. So they don't they weren't really the reason that the Israelites were uh, were were sent into exile, um, and that's important to understand because Isaiah is, is, talks about the sin of the people, and, and we'll look at that as we we work through this passage. Um, but you have to understand the people of Israel who are there now, or the the people that uh, are alive in the that are the Israelites now, they weren't adults at that time. They weren't active participants 
in this sin that Isaiah will be talking about here. So they've been in captivity for a, a, a long time, and Isaiah is calling out to God in despair. He's calling out out of the hopelessness that the people are feeling, saying, we need a change. We need you to come down. All right. And so he starts verse um, 60 or chapter 64. He starts by calling out to God and saying, God, rend the heavens in two and come down back down to earth. Uh, he's he knows that God can do this. He wants God to just split the sky, come down and enter into where they're at and to start making things happen. All right. He talks about how he wants God to come down and to make the mountains tremble before him. Uh, he, he talks about how um, if God will do this, then what will happen is just like when a fire um, is started. Uh, if you've ever started a fire, you start with little twigs and you set them ablaze. And as soon as you've set them ablaze and they're on fire, the fire continues to build as you add more wood to it. And all of that is useful because it allows you to, as Isaiah says, it allows you to cause the waters to boil, um, meaning that it's, it's a helpful thing. It's a thing that, that brings about change because without the fire, the water wouldn't be boiling, wouldn't be used for cooking or cleaning or whatever purposes it is. It's this, it's this idea that the God, that Isaiah is calling God to come down to enact change, to bring something new to the situation they're in, because they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't say, they don't see, man, we only have to bear with it for another, you know, year or two, maybe a few months. No, they don't, they don't see any end in sight. And Isaiah is pleading with God to come down and to bring change. He says, come down and make your name known to your enemies, that the nations would quake before you. This is an interesting um, idea because this is something that has happened beforehand. Um, Isaiah isn't just sort of pulling this out of nowhere. This is what happened when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt. So uh, if you don't know the story, in Exodus... Uh, the Israelites were captives or slaves to the Egyptian empire for 400 years. And there, uh, there's like a, two million of them. There's a huge number of them. And God hears their calls and he comes into the situation with, um, and, and he works with Moses and they, they liberate the Israelites. Uh, there's the 10 plagues of, Israel, of Egypt, uh, if you've, you know that story, and he causes ten plagues to happen, and the Pharaoh is so fed up, he tells them just to get out, to go, and and he leads them out, literally leads them out. God is this shows himself as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, a uh, fire during the night and a cloud during the day, and he leads them. He literally leads the group out um, and takes them to the Red Sea, and and most of us have heard the story of the Red Sea, but God parts the Red Sea and allows the Israelites to walk through on dry ground. And Pharaoh, by this point, is changed his mind. He's like, whoa, I've, what was I thinking? Two, thousand, two million slaves, what are we going to do um, to get all of these different things that they were already doing done now? And so he rallies the army. They go out to get the Israelites and bring them back to captivity. And 
they charge through the Red Sea after the Israelites, and God closes it and drowns the army. The Israelites are safe on the other side. None of them lost, and they're free. Now the story continues, and God leads them to the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. And he leads them there rather quickly. Uh, they're there for, it only takes a few months to get there, and, that, and most of that time they are actually camped out at Mount Sinai where God institutes the covenants with Moses and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And that's a big, long story that we're not going to go into right now. But he leads them to Canaan. And Moses sends in 12 men, 12 spies, one from each tribe. And he says, go and find out what we need to know about the land before we enter. So they do. They all go in. They come back. Great stories. Stories of grapes the size of soccer balls and, I mean, milk and honey flowing everywhere. All this great stuff. However, they're giants. They're The people who live there are huge. There's no way that we're going to be able to defeat them. I don't know how to how we're going to be able to, to, to do this. I think that it, it's not wise. That's what 10 of them said. 10 out of 12 said, I don't think this is a good idea because of the giants. Two of them said, we can do this. Yes, there are giants, but God can make it so we can make it, we can be victorious. Well, Moses planned to go with what the two said. Problem was, is that the ten had big mouths and they began to spread what they had reported to the people and the people overruled Moses and they didn't go in. And as a punishment, God makes them wander through the wilderness for 40 years, a whole generation. Now, we don't spend a lot of time in that 40 years looking at all the different things that happened during that 40 years. We sort of just skip over it. We just say the Israelites wandered for 40 years, and then we come back to when they enter into the, into the land of Canaan again. But there's a whole book in the Bible all about the 40 years they're in the wilderness. It's the book of Numbers. It's a great book. Lots of really cool things happen in the book of Numbers. Uh, there's a talking donkey in the book of Numbers. Check it out. Look it up. Um, and so what's so cool about the book of Numbers is that even though they're being punished, even though they're wandering, God never leaves them. He still is with them. He's still providing through this whole ordeal. Okay? He's He's given them food. He's given them water. And, and they're traveling. And when I was a kid and I heard this story, I thought they were just like living out in the desert by themselves for 40 years. Man, that'd be boring and so much sand. But that's not what happened. They, there were lots of people in this area. They, they traveled through many kingdoms. It wasn't just barren wilderness. It was, there was some of that, but there were large kingdoms on this side of the Jordan River that the Israelites went through and were um, around. And the book of Numbers is amazing because it tells you and shows you the, how God continues to provide for them. And it, it's this idea that God is making a name known for himself. So every time the Israelites, remember there's two million of them, would come to a new kingdom, Moses would send runners and messengers to whoever was in charge and say, hey, listen, we're the, we're the Hebrews, we're the Israelites, we are coming through we have no intention of settling. We have no intention of stealing anything. Um, we will buy any food that we use. We will not be taking from you. We just, we have no military aggression towards you. We're just passing through. Please let us pass through. 
Every single time, the ruler, whoever he was, whatever king he was, he saw the Israelites and saw them as a threat, and he would rally and marshal his armies, and they would go out against the Israelites. Every single time. And every single time, God would destroy the enemy army and give the land to the Israelites. So here we go. So think about it. They're traveling through one country. God destroys the army, says this is now yours. They go to the next country because they're not stopping. They're not settling. But because they, their plan is to go back to Canaan, remember? And they all of a sudden, nation after nation after nation after nation for 40 years, they're taking over nations without ever lifting a sword. God is the one who's providing for them. And they get to the Jordan River 40 years later. All right? They're going in circles, first of all. Understand that. Because it doesn't take 40 years to cross the wilderness. They get to the Jordan River, which is the Jordan River was the border of the Canaanite land. This is the promised land is on the other side of the Jordan River. Here they are, two million people camped out across the Jordan River. And on the other side of the Jordan River is a giant town with huge walls called Jericho. Um, many of us have heard the story of the walls of Jericho. Even if you aren't from the church, you have probably heard about Joshua and the walls of the Jericho. Here's the walls of Jericho. They can see the Jordan River. They can see the Israelite camp. They know who the Israelites are because word of who they are and what has happened around them has come to Jericho and to the lands beyond Jericho, and they are terrified of the Israelites. They're terrified. It's the reason Jericho doesn't like marshal their army and go out and fight the Israelites because they know that everybody who has ever gone against the Israelites has been destroyed. That's why they haul up inside of their town, inside of the walls. But God doesn't stop God. But at least the Jordan River is between the Israelites and them. It'll take them a while to be able to get past the flood season and we'll be able to harvest and everything. And all of a sudden, God stops the river and the river stops flowing and they cross the river on dry ground. And what are we going to do now? They're at our doorstep. This is the imagery. This is the, the history that Isaiah is calling upon when he says to God, come down, make the mountains tremble before you, bring about change, make your name known among your enemies again and cause them to quake before you. Isaiah isn't just calling for something that's never happened before. He knows God can do this, and he wants God to do this because they are desperate. They need to have hope. They need to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because they know that no one has ever heard or seen any other God besides their God who actually provides for their people the way that God does. Now Isaiah shifts a little here and he starts talking about why God would help them. He says how if we know that you will come to the help of those who will, who will gladly do right and follow your ways. Because that's the covenant God made with the Israelites when they, when they were in that time in Mount Sinai when he was making covenants with Moses, it was that was what was being said. If they follow my ways, if they like follow my direction and allow me to lead them as their king, I will protect them and I will keep them safe and they will not have to fear anything. 
But if they stray, if they decide to follow other gods, if they decide to do their own thing and not my way, then my protection will leave them. And that's what happened with the Israelites. As, as Isaiah said, we continue to sin against your ways. We continue to, to sin against you, and you were angry with us. That's the reason they're in Babylon. Because God had given protection, and they continued to worship other gods and do other things. They, they looked and wanted to be like all the other countries around them. And that wasn't what God wanted them to be. He wanted them to be His people. But they, they wanted to fit in with, with the world around them, and they did things that they shouldn't have done, and, and God protected them because He is a God of grace. But oh, eventually, God allowed the consequences of their sin to happen, which was for Him to, lose, to remove protection and for the other empires to come in and to take them over. Isaiah knows this. Because how can we then be saved? Because we're living in the consequences of our sins right now. For all of us, it says in verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name anymore or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins, to the consequences of our actions. He, he is blatant with it. He's open. He's raw with who they are. They have been unclean. They have been the people who have gone astray. And, and what he says is not just a situation that is true for all of Israel, but it's true for all people in general. We are all unclean. We all strive for our own will before God's normally. And it makes us unclean. And what I think is so interesting here is he says all of our righteous acts, all of the things they did to try to be good, they are like filthy rags. That imagery of filthy rags, I've, I've heard it before many times in growing up in the church, and some people, uh, um, most of you probably have heard that too. This is more than what I had ever pictured. When I think of this, um, I, you know, you hear the story of, uh, or you, the imagery of we wear filthy rags and through Christ's righteousness, he cleanses our rags clean or he puts his clean robes of, of righteousness on us instead of our filthy rags. I've always taken that to mean my laundry was dirty or my, I was just wearing dirty clothes. But, but the, the real heart of what this is saying here is not just dirty clothes, but filthy rags, like like the kind of rags you use for sanitary cleaning kind of rags, like rags full of refuse and, and gross things. Like, use your imagination, I don't want to be too graphic in my depiction, but that is the imagery of this word. That the, the Hebrew word used there is that imagery. It's not that your laundry's dirty. It's, it's the stuff that you 
come out of a bathroom with. That's the filthy rags that our righteousness tries. When we try to do it our way, when we try to be good enough, the result is filthy rags. And it's only through God that we're able to not produce that anymore. And Isaiah realizes that. He realizes that because all of their attempts have produced this filth and and disgusting stuff, it it leaves them like a shriveled leaf. And the, the winds of sin drive them wherever it wants them to go instead of allowing God to take them where He wants them to go. And as a result, they were given over to their sin. Now, verse 8, there's a real shift here. This is a real a, a change of the tone in the way that Isaiah is speaking. It's no longer this cry and plead of lament and, and confession of, of the people's sin as he's giving there in verse 6 and 7. Uh, this is a, an addressing God for who he really is. He says, Yet you, Lord, you are our Father. You are the one who loves us like a father loves us. We are your clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. This imagery of the potter and the clay is one that is seen many different times throughout Scripture. And it's this idea of God shaping us into what He wants us to be, into the vessel that He desires us to be for the purposes He has for us. The pot has no say. The the clay has no say in what it's going to look like. When When it tries to, I don't know if you know much about pottery, I know very little, but I've heard this analogy before, so I'm going to relay the analogy that I have heard, and this is not firsthand knowledge to me. There are times when you're doing pottery where the clay is not willing to work or be worked for whatever reason. And again, not firsthand knowledge. I don't know the exact reasons as to why it doesn't work like the rest of the clay. But for some reason, there are times when the clay just will not do what the potter is wanting it to do. And what results from that is that the potter literally cuts that piece of the clay out, throws it away, and starts anew. We don't want to be the clay that isn't willing to be worked on by the Father. We don't want to be so rigid, so hard, that we're unwilling to be shaped like God wants us to be shaped. The other thing I think is interesting, and I think it's it's really poignant coming from Isaiah in this place of despair and hopelessness, is that when a when clay is being shaped by the potter, it doesn't know the final outcome. It doesn't know what it's being turned into. It, it doesn't know why why the potter is rounding this corner or or bringing or elongating this part of the pot or the clay. It, it doesn't know. It just has to trust that the potter knows what's happening. And Isaiah and the Israelites have no idea when this is ending. They have no idea. Um, when they have learned the lesson, really, and, and when they get to maybe return back to Israel. And I think it's true for us because there are times where, especially this year, we don't really see or understand when the end is coming. We think we know, 
but we, we don't really know. And one of the other times I think it's interesting that the clay doesn't understand this, the process of being made into pottery is um, I don't think the clay knows why it's being put into a really hot burning kiln. That would be a moment where I, as the clay, would be going, whoa, what's happening here? Whoa, 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 whoa. It's a little too warm. Can we, can we tone it down a bit? Uh, and I think that there are times in the Israelites' life, I think Babylon's one of those times, and I think there are definitely times in each of our lives where the temperature has been turned up and we, we don't see the final result of what will come of that and we just know it is uncomfortable and we want it to end. But here's the thing is that God is the potter. He knows the end. He knows why we're where we're at. He knows the good that will come of the things that are happening. And He is in control of them. Isaiah continues in verse 9 and he says, Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. This is a plea for God's mercy and grace. And that is the the characteristic Isaiah knows of, of God that he trusts the most, that he wants to see present again. And it is the very, it is the very characteristic of God that we as Christians, that we as people who need God rely on the most because it's the only thing that allows us to be in relationship with Him. It's the only thing that allows us to be considered righteous in His eyes. It is the only thing that allows us to have hope no matter what hopeless situation we're in. One of my favorite verses in uh, passages of the Bible is in Revelation chapter 8. Now, you might be thinking that Revelation is a very weird book. It's got a lot of weird imagery in it. It talks about a lot of crazy, kind of scary things, because Revelation is the, is the prophecies of what might happen at the end of all time, or the end of the world. Um, and it a lot of people steer away from it because of that. And we, and I don't, I don't steer away from it. I don't, I don't read it like every day or anything, but one of my favorite passages is in chapter eight of Revelation. So if you have, if you have a chance, turn over there. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter eight. So the big, John is in the throne room of heaven. He's where God is seated on the throne. He's watching all of this happen and angels have been breaking seals and and you know and that and that's sort of the way that revelation unfolds is there's seven seals and there's seven bowls and there's seven trumpets and all of those things result in crazy different things happen and there's so much imagery but the the awesome thing is in verse 1 or in chapter 8 of revelation the seventh seal is broken so follow along with me verse 1 it says when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels of God stand before, the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a gold censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people. 
on the gold, all the golden altar in front of the throne, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and he hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. There's some interesting imagery there, right? Sensors and fire and earthquakes and, I mean, sounds like what you'd find in Revelation. But what I want us to see here is that, is what is all this meaning? <laughs> here we are. John is writing about what might happen at the end of all things. And, and I think that this is something, this particular part is happening all the time in heaven. I don't think this is necessarily one specific moment when this happens, but John is writing about one time where there is silence in heaven. Silence. If there are crickets in heaven, it's the only thing you can hear. And God is sitting on his throne, and there's an angel who has a censer. A censer, if you don't know, is uh, it's kind of a giant ball thing that hangs on a chain. It's very, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church uses it a lot. Um, and normally it's filled with like incense that's burning and then the priest will like sort of swing it back and forth and that scent is permeating the room and it, it it's this idea that this is bringing us into a place of worship. Well, in this situation, the, the scent is being mixed in with all of the prayers of the people. Every prayer you have ever prayed, every prayer that um, the Israelites have ever prayed, here is Isaiah's prayer that God would come down, is all mixed in with the incense, and it's burned on the altar in front of God's throne. And the smells go up to God, and God is pleased. And it says that the angel takes fire and he mixes it, it with his censer and then it gets thrown back down to, have, uh, to earth and there is a peal of thunder, rumbles, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All of those imagery it is their volatile mo moments of change and shifting and things happening. It's this idea that when we pray to God, all of heaven is silent so that God may hear us. And when God hears us and it's mixed with the worship that comes with it, he takes that and he fills it with his power, which is the imagery of the fire, and he sends it back down to earth to bring about the change that is needed for the situations that we are finding ourselves in. It's the changes that are needed, not necessarily the ones we're specifically asking for. That's important to understand. Why is that passage important with this other passage, you might ask? Because I think that the prayers Isaiah prayed are in those prayers. I think that God does come down. We know the story. We have hindsight. We have the ability to see and to understand that God does come down. The Israelites are saved from Babylon. They are brought back out to Israel. They get to reestablish themselves, and, and the ultimate hope and joy that comes from that is all those years later when Jesus is born, when God himself enters into the physical situation, and he dies on a cross, and he saves us from our sins. All of those things that we were captive to, that were the, the things that drove the Israelites into exile, God, in the form of Jesus, dies on the cross for all of that. Now here is, here's where it speaks to us. 
We all have our own situations we're dealing with. And, and we each have a different level of, of emotions that we were engaging in those situations. Some of us have the ability to weather the crazy that we're dealing with okay. Some of us don't. And some of us just have a really good poker face and know how to hide that we're not dealing with it well. And I want to say that in month 11 of 2020, I think there's a real sense of hopelessness. And I think that we we're calling out to God, asking God to, to, to render the heavens and to enter in. And here's the amazing thing. In Revelation, it says God hears us, and He does enter in. And God responds to us in our hopelessness by saying, listen, I am with you right now. You're not by yourself. You're not alone. You're not, you're not being, you're not being cast out adrift by, by yourself. I am here with you. All you must do is, is lean on me. And he'll hold us up. He'll carry us through. And often it's through our own acts of, of love and care for each other and for the people around us that, that we are the hands and feet that lift up the others around us. So often that is how it happens. But we don't have to, we don't have to just resume our, our despair within the hopelessness that our world has dished out to us this year. But instead, we have the ability to grasp onto the hope, the only hope that comes through Christ Jesus, and to say that because of Him, that no matter what, He is the one in charge. He is the one who is carrying me through. He is the one that provides the only light at the end of the tunnel. I don't have to despair. I can have joy in what seems like a joyless situation. And as we enter into this holiday season, uh, this Advent season, as we prepare for this celebration that culminates on Christmas, where we celebrate Jesus Christ coming to earth as a baby, we can begin to see the hope again. We can reignite that hope during this time. And here's the great thing is that we know, we know that He doesn't stay a baby. We know that he grows up, he lives a life, he per, per, begins a ministry, he heals the sick, he takes care of the poor, he dies on the cross, and he has made it possible for us to have eternal hope in him. Because this Advent season isn't just to look forward to him as a baby, but we as we as Christians look forward to the promise that he will return that He is coming back for us, that His kingdom will be established on earth. 
That's the real hope. That's the true hope of Advent. That's the thing that is so important as we celebrate Christmas, that it isn't just about something that happened 2,000 years ago when he was a baby, but it's this continual thing that is happening as we move forward and become an active participant in this kingdom that God is establishing through us on earth and will culminate with his return. We are the hope for those around us because we carry the light of Christ into the world around us as well. Be a light. You know, we light Advent candles during this time to signify light in the darkness. Be the light into the situations around you where God can shine His light of love through you. Be the light this year. Will you pray with me? Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. We thank You that You speak to us. You help us to hear You. Help what we heard today to transform us into more like You. Help us to be Your light. Help us to to have the hope that we need to carry and then to spread that hope to those who also need it. Be with us this week, we pray. Help us to stay safe. May we be your hands and feet to the world around us as we come back together next week to enter into worship once again with you. We love you. We want your will in our lives and in the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.